Tous les matins, on essaye de traverser le miroir et de regarder le monde différemment. It is true, I am a woman. Une fois que ce saut est fait, tout devient possible. Hello, I'm Charlotte Kassaragi. Welcome to the podcast of Les Rendez-vous Littéraires Rue Cambon, a place where we meet to talk about writing, to talk about books. Let's meet women writers who have just taken their first step, the most decisive, the most difficult in the world of literature. How did their vocation call to them? What are their writing rituals? Who reads them and what do they read? And today, Erica Wagner will be hosting Lisa Tadeo. I'm Erica Wagner, and I'm so pleased to introduce Lisa Tadeo. Lisa Tadeo's first novel, Animal, was described by the New York Times as a propulsive, fiercely confident debut. It is a striking portrait of a woman's consciousness as her life spins beyond her control. She had already appeared in the bestseller lists, however, with her non-fiction book of intimate reportage, Three Women. I am delighted to welcome her to the Rendezvous Literaire podcast today. Welcome, Lisa. Thank you so much for having me, Erica. So I'd like to begin at the beginning. How did you start? How did you discover you were a writer? You know, it's funny. I don't remember not ever wanting. I always wanted to be a writer. When I was a child, I would, before I could read, I would take a book that my parents were reading, which was usually like um, John Grisham or V.C. Uh, um, Andrews for my mom. <laughs> um, and I would read the I would intersperse, sub out a word, each of the words I didn't know for my own word, and tell the story in the book to my stuffed animals. Um, so that was when I started. And I was, and you know, after I learned how to sort of read and write, I was always writing poetry and like little things. And I don't know, it just always, I can't remember not wanting to be a writer. But then I think you had very high standards early on, <laughs> um, because I believe, and of course you can correct me, that after college you sold a novel, but you mm-hmm. abandoned it, you withdrew yes, it. I Tell did. us a little bit about that. So, you know, it's funny, because I think about that all the time. I think about what my, if my, what, how my trajectory would have been different had I not. Um, the novel was, to be honest, it was a very, it was like a precursor to animal in a sense. Um, and it was also about a woman who was very fed up with the world, in a sense. And by the time I wrote Animal, I was even more fed up. <laughs> so there's even more of a rage factor. But um, yeah, I I had written this book. Um, it's It was called Bitch. That was the title. Um, and I sold it. I was very excited. I was in my early 20s, I think. And around the same time, I, I started writing for uh, Esquire and New York Magazine. And I started feeling like I that was not 
the first thing that I wanted to be out in the world. And I think that was a time when sort of the quote unquote chiclet was something that was on the tips of everyone's tongue. And I didn't want to be gendered in any way. And I worried that because, you know, my novel was about a, a woman, in essence, that it would be. And and so that, um, I mean, I, there were other reasons. I think any time you, you haven't worked on something for like six months and you go back and look at it and you're like, oh my God, this is awful. I'm so much better now. And maybe you are and maybe you aren't. But I certainly felt that, you know, there was room to improve. So I, I did not want it published. They let me keep the advance, which was very kind. It was a small advance, but they let me keep it because I think they thought I wanted to go publish it elsewhere or something. I was like, no, 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 don't worry, you guys, you can have that. (laughs) It's yours forever. (laughs) But do you think that that self-criticism, I want to say constant revision, is that, we'll talk a little bit later about your process, but I think that must be, and it certainly is for me, one of the challenges of mm-hmm. committing yourself yeah. to the life of a writer. Totally. You know, I mean, I think I have gotten a lot better. Like, I was much younger then. I've gotten a lot better at letting some of that go because, you know, and, and it's something I always tell young writers when they ask me for advice on how to get published. You know, ultimately, you won't get published until you send something out. So, you know, if you hold it in your room, in your computer, in your files for, you know, 15 years, you're probably going to not, you know, it's just so for me, my advice to younger people is just get it out. Like, you know, by all means, don't get it out all sloppy. But also, you know, after six months of looking at the same, you know, 150 pages, chances are it's not going to change drastically. So I have I have loosened that for myself. Is there a, a positive moment, I suppose, you'd like to share with us? There's the appreciative audience of your stuffed animals. <laughs> then They're you so appreciative. withdrew this book. But then eventually, your first book, of course, was nonfiction. Mm-hmm. How did you come out into the world with that? How did you find your publishing house? I was writing, I'd written a story for New York Magazine. Um, the Rachel Yucatel Tiger Woods story had just broken, and I got her to say yes to my interviewing her. And I wrote this story for New York Magazine that started out being about the Tiger Woods scandal, but then because so many of the women that Tiger had allegedly had relationships with were working in this bottle service industry at clubs, I became much more interested in the bottle girls themselves and what they... Tell us what a bottle girl sure. is for those bottle who don't know. Bottle um, girl is a, a, a woman who works at a, at a nightclub um, who brings... It's not a cocktail waitress exactly because... I mean, I don't know. Maybe maybe it's changed since I've I've written the piece. But they bring if you are at a VIP table at a club and you order a like Jeroboam of um, Cristal, uh, these women will come with sparklers sometimes, depending on how big the bottle is, and bring it over. And then they'll also sit with the people at the table. So the idea, and Rachel Yucatel, who was a um, VIP concierge at, at many clubs, was the person who would find the women, link up the women with the club or with that particular evening. She would say, I have, you know, a bunch of whales, like, you know, whales are men with big 
spending capability as I have a bunch of whales coming in tonight. I need, you know, 17 models who, you know, et cetera. And some of the models were bottle girls who worked all the time for that club or that person. And other times they were kind of freelance. And the job would go above and beyond outside the club and not necessarily in a sexual way. It wasn't exactly transactional. It was like, you know, the guys would be at the club and they would be with these young or, you know, women who were attractive and they would say, we're going to Cabo for the weekend. You know, do you want to come? And then the women would kind of be expected, it's the wrong word, but that was part of the whole of atmosphere the and experience. Exactly. So I I followed a lot of bottle girls around, like with their sort of their lives. And I spent a lot of nights in clubs, um, like drinking cranberry juice and looking at the VIP room, <laughs> like a sad, very sad person. Um, but it was anyway, so I'm sorry, long winded answer. But my editor um, at Simon & Schuster, he had read that piece and he called me up and we went to lunch. And, you know, I had this novel that I was going to publish and I was always going to do fiction. I was doing nonfiction because it pays more money, quite frankly, you know, in the sort of in the weekly or monthly magazine realm in any case. And um, he asked me if I wanted to write a book. And I was like, oh, it's so interesting. I guess, in fact, I have this. And he was like, no, 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 nonfiction. I want you to do something that's like reportage. I want you to do what you did in that New York Magazine piece. And I was just like, well, I, I was like a nonfiction book about what? And he was like, whatever you want. So that was really cool, but also very, like, you know, daunting, like, whatever I want. I'm like, well, I don't know. I like horses. I like dogs. <laughs> um, but, uh, you know, so he sent me a number of books that he was um, admiring of. And one of them was Gay Talese's Thy Neighbor's Wife, wherein Mr. Talese had uh, had spent about a decade reporting on swingers clubs and and other things sexuality at the at the sort of um 1979 and going into the eight, the decade of the 80s and i was very admiring of the depth and the time it took him and i thought what would a book about desire look like told from a female perspective but at the same time you were as i understand also writing Animal as you were researching three women. Am I correct? Yeah, I didn't start writing Animal until I was in school at BU. So you were working on three women, you were approached by a publisher, but then you decided to do a further degree for mm -hmm. your writing. Why yes. did you decide to do that? Well, I felt like, um, you know, and three women hadn't come out yet, but I felt um, I did not want to be pigeonholed into any one genre because I mean fiction is what is where my heart always lied so um Verlay oh god that's one I've never gotten right <laughs> which one is it I think where that's my where heart... my heart always lay lay okay all right. I think that will be encouraging to all the budding <laughs> writers listening to I'm this totally happy always happy to to showcase all of my mistakes um, it's so helpful when people see things that I always do that. That's something that's really important to me. But um, anyway, fiction was where my heart always lay. And I did not want to, I wanted to make sure that it was going to be taken seriously in a sense, because I think it's like sometimes if, you know, an actor is all of a sudden releasing an album, everyone's like, ugh, 
you know? And it's like, why? You don't know what that, you don't know if that person might have started singing first. Like, you don't know. But we're so eager, I think, as a culture to, it's like, no, 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 stay in your lane. That's your lane. No, 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 you're not a singer. You're not a singer. And I was a fiction writer who had published a book of nonfiction, um, but I wanted to make sure that, you know, there was more than just my voice saying, me, 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 I can do this. I wanted the degree. I also, um, what's great about going to a program like an MFA, um, if you have the time for it, because it is difficult, I think, um, is that you are forced to write in a sense and people are, are reading it. And it's just, it, it just felt like something that I should do for myself and my career. I think it does mark because I also did in Britain, it's just called a master's in creative writing. And I did a further degree at the University of East Anglia. And certainly for me, it also marked a commitment to myself as a writer. I'm taking this year, I'm going to have my work looked at by professors and my fellow students, Mm -hmm. partly just taking the time and saying, this is really what I'm doing now. And for me, that was fiction too, although I, like you, also write Mm -hmm. nonfiction. So then you started working on Animal. And I wonder, again, having gone out into the world with a novel that you withdrew, even though you were by then a published author, what was the moment when you knew that Animal, your first novel, was going to come out into the world when you either heard it was going to be published when your publisher accepted it what was that like um it was it was great it was really great um when my editor I think I think I handed in I did I handed in the not final draft but one of the closest to the ends final drafts of three women he had just seen pieces up until then and animal I think it was the same day like here (laughs) here's the one that you paid for and here's another one that can you pay for me for this one too because I just did this. And when he wrote back and it was a really beautiful note, it made me very, very happy. It made me feel great. But, you know, part of the th- that process for me with fiction started a little bit earlier when I was in school at, at BU and one of my professors was Todd Jin, who was great. And then one of my others was Leslie Epstein, who was the director of the program for many years. And he just made me feel like a fiction writer and did not care that I had a nonfiction book coming out with a major. He had no, he just only cared about fiction and treated my fiction like it was great. It wasn't like, oh, I'm looking at Lisa because she already has an agent and a. It was very like, you're great at this. And that made me feel like, so I credit him in a sense with that feeling of like, just someone just kind of going, you're, you're, this is correct. This is the right thing. You did the right thing. I think that's such an important point mm-hmm. to make because, of course, you're a published writer. I'm going to be talking to other published writers, but mm-hmm. so many of us. Mm-hmm. spend so long mm-hmm. not being published mm-hmm. and having to stick to our vocation. Mm-hmm. And it is a vocation. So I love that story of finding validation in a professor, in another reader. And finally, I think we have to know this about ourselves, mm-hmm. don't we? Yep. Totally. Totally. It's And it's hard. It's really hard to, you have to kind of go, you're right, stay the course, even when 
the whole it feels like the whole world's like you should just quit (laughs) you should just stop (laughs) and I think that's one of the hardest things about writing or any kind of profession in the arts where it's really difficult because you know I was raised by my father was a doctor and my mother was a survivor. <laughs> she was a homemaker. But, you know, for them, um, making money so that you could feed your family was really the only thing that mattered. And if I was going to do something in the world that wasn't feeding a family, then it wasn't going to be taken seriously in my house. My dad wanted me to be a doctor like him. So I was actually just talking to a friend of mine the other day who was also who was a photographer and her fa- her f- sort of upbringing was almost the opposite, where, like, art was like, we must make space for art, you know? And it's and so she has this confidence around her, around, like, taking the time for her process that I find so inspiring because for me, I'm like, ah, I shouldn't take the time. I should just, I should do 18 things at once, you know? I wanted to ask you about writers who inspired you, writers you loved early on. I have read... And again, you can correct me that Stephen King was an inspiration, that The Stand is a favorite novel of yours. Maybe tell us why and and give us another literary inspiration. Sure. Um, You know, when I was a kid, um, my parents read a lot. We, We went to the town pool and they would read and I would... Um, and also there was a like a I guess the beginnings of you know the little free library, I, I guess the beginnings of that at the town pool. Um, it was like a place where you just dumped books that you were done reading, and they were all kind of like wet, you know. Um, People would leave yes, books. People exactly, would take books. Exactly. And um, and so I read a lot of books there, and a lot of the types of books that were there were sort of you know the things that were very popular in the mid to late 80s. And Stephen King, you know, has is still huge, but he was, it was, you know, a very um, prime time for him. And my father was, had read The Stand and I, um, we went to Italy to see our family and I took it with me and I remember reading it the entire time we're like in all these beautiful places and all I wanted to do was just curl up with this very dark book. <laughs> um, and I love Stephen King. I've, re- I've probably read about 80% of his um of his uh, oeuvre. Um, but some other uh, writers that have inspired me or been James Salter, Elena Ferrante, Lucia Berlin, Natalia Ginsburg, Joy Williams, Barry Hanna. A lot of my favorite authors are, are short story authors. I'm, I'm a very big fan of the art of the craft of a sentence. And so a lot of the people that I gravitate towards are people who really just write wow sentences. And you can feel that attention to craft, certainly in your own writing, Lisa. (laughs) I would love to invite you to read a little from Animal. Would you do that for us? Absolutely. This is um, from the very beginning. I drove myself out of New York City where a man shot himself in front of me. He was a gluttonous man, and when his blood came out, it looked like the blood of a pig. That's a cruel thing to think, I know. He did it in a restaurant where I was having dinner with another man, another married man. Do you see how this is going? But I wasn't always that way. The restaurant was called Piadina. On the exposed brick walls hung photographs of old Italian women rolling gnocchi across their giant flowered fingers. I was eating a bowl of tagliatelle bolognese. The sauce was thick and rust-colored, and there was a bright sprig of parsley at the top. I was facing the door when Vic came in. He was wearing a suit, which was usual. 
I'd seen him only once in casual clothes, a t-shirt and jeans, and it disturbed me very much. I'm sure he could tell. His arms were pale and soft, and I couldn't stop looking at them. He was never Victor. He was always Vic. He was my boss, and for a long time before anything happened, I looked up to him. He was very intelligent and clean and had a warm face. He ate and drank voraciously, but there was a dignity to his excess. He was generous, scooping cream spinach onto everyone else's plate before his own. He had a great vocabulary and a neat comb-over and an extensive collection of fine hats. He had two children, a girl and a boy. The boy was mentally challenged, and Vic somewhat kept this from me and the other people beneath him. He had only a picture of the daughter on his desk. Vic took me to hundreds of restaurants. We ate porterhouse at big clubby steakhouses with red banquettes, and the waiters flirted with me. They either assumed he was my father or my older husband, or they figured I was a mistress. We were, somehow, all of the above. His actual wife was at home in Red Bank. He said, I know you won't believe this because of what a slob I am, but my wife is actually very beautiful. In fact, she was not. Her hair was too short for her face and her skin was too white for the color she liked to wear. She looked like a good mother. She liked to buy little salt dishes and Turkish towels, and in the beginning of our friendship, I would walk around the city, and if a bamboo salt dish caught my eye, I would snap a photo and text him. Would your wife like? Thank you so much. We will now move on to talking about your process. So, when you sit down to write, what do you do? You know, the classic question yes. is, how do you find the time, the of time. course? <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, it's it's funny. It, it's just changed so much. When I had free time, I used to get up very early in the morning um, I loved writing either very early. Well, now it's changed to very late, but I love writing when no one else is up, either in the house or even in the world, you know, my world of like, who's going to email me? When I'm um, up early or up late, I feel like it's time that is completely mine. Um, I wish that I could make that space during the day, but it's not quite so easy. So um, I would wake up really early and I would just... Um, you know, in my pajamas, right? At, I would write anywhere. I never had like a, the only thing I couldn't do was write in a coffee shop. I was I wanted to be one of those people. I was glad I wasn't when the pandemic hit, but I was never one of those people who could write in a coffee shop. So I have to have total silence. And if my family is home with me, I, when I should go to a little office, we rent down the road, but I don't because <laughs> I'm lazy. And I'm always like, shh, so my process is a lot of that. But now, because, you know, there's a lot of work with adapting three women into a show and, and all of that, I write when I can. And that is a, it's a really awful way for me to write because it's just not, it, it takes the fun out of it. Um, so your ideal would be to have a kind of ritual. Yes, a routine. Exactly. Where you would have silence. Silence. Would you rise straight from your bed? Do you think and go straight yes. in that silent space? Totally, totally. Straight to the space and then just like, what? because I mean, that's kind of my favorite time is um, I spend a good 20 minutes every morning um, 
Uh, I would love to say meditating, but usually crying or having a panic attack about the day ahead. Um, and then I go and work from there. Um, but uh, yeah, so my process now is having a panic attack in the morning, trying to stave it off, and then moving into my work day, answering emails, and then, and then lately it's been writing late at night. And when you're sitting down to write, I mentioned earlier that you pay such close attention to your sentences, the craft of your work. Is that something that happens sort of immediately in the moment? Or is that something that happens more through a process of revision? I'm not that much of a reviser. I care a lot about the sentences, so I don't move on to the next one until I like the one that I've just written. So I work on a sentence-by-sentence sentence level. And, I mean, I will go back and, and revise, sure, but I'm, I don't really move on until I feel good. Otherwise, I feel like there's going to be more work to do later, and that's scary. <laughs> and when does someone else get to see what you've written? And is there a particular person before your editor... No. A family member, a friend? No, no. Um, I, you know, it's I. I used to crowdsource like everyone, you know, and I do with my husband when I'm writing scripts because I really value his opinion because he's taught me how to write them. I will show my husband script stuff, but when it comes to prose, I won't show anyone except for my editor. It's just that you know. <sighs> It's not that there's people's opinions I don't value. It's just that it's such a subjective thing. And something, like, I might feel one way. My editor at the end of the day, who I trust and, and admire and I'm so grateful to have, I care about his opinion for two reasons. One, because I value it because of who he is. And two, because he is the one who's going to put it through or not. So, and I feel the same way when it comes to writing scripts. It's like, you know, at the end of the day, you can ask a bunch of people and do a bunch of things. And then you might have started with something that when you take it to the network, for example, they'll be like, oh, I wish it was just the two of them in the room. And it's like, oh, well, that's the way I had it before 50 people told me to change it. How does your writing make you feel? I always think this is an interesting a good question. question. It makes me feel. Yeah. Anxious. <laughs> <laughs> you mean like reading it back to yourself? Reading, or? Even when I sit down, you know, mm -hmm. I've had to kind of welcome that process over right. years, knowing that I always have this sense of, I use the word anxious, maybe yeah. it's a heightened sense. Yeah. But it doesn't make me, strictly speaking, happy. Uh-huh. Yes. Interesting. Um, from someone who has anxiety about every single aspect of their life, I will say that I probably do not have it with writing. Writing for me does feel like a catharsis, as long as there's no like immediate deadline attached to it, or it's something that, you know, or it's something that I'm not like, I'm not passionate about. If I'm passionate about what I'm writing about, then returning to it at night is the thing that gives me peace. And I know you have, you and your husband have a daughter. Yes. How old is She's she now? Six. She's going to be seven soon. People tend only to ask this question of women. I think interviewers <laughs> should ask men mm -hmm. too. You talked about the crowded demands of your life, but specifically, how has having a family and indeed having this other life around you influenced your process 
not just in your time, perhaps, but how you how you think about the work. Yeah, it's annihilated my process. <laughs> um, I feel like, you know, sometimes I feel like there's a writer me and a mommy me, and the two don't really hang out, you know, and don't really um, just they have nothing to say to each other, you know, in a sense. And and I I don't want to be um, like carved out, uh, compartmentalized like that. I would like it to be more free flowing. But it is it's very hard because I, and I think this is something that's really if, if I were a doctor like my father had been, if I were like leaving the house every morning to go to a job that if I didn't do it in that specific way, I would be fired or I wouldn't save a life or whatever. With being a writer, there's a lot of ways to skin a cat. There's a lot of times that you can do it if you have, you know, if you have that sort of malleable schedule. So for me, whenever I'm choosing to write, even though I get paid to write, and it is part of what pays for the food on the table in our house and all of that, even though that is very clearly my job, I still feel like I'm choosing myself over my child. Um, choosing to spend time with myself or to do something selfish in a sense. And, you know, I feel the same way about self-care in a sense whenever I'm like, oh, I'm going to go to the spa. I've never said that. But I always feel this sense of guilt. And I think that, you know, comes from the way that I was raised and all of that. And so it's really hard. It has dismantled my process. Um, And I have tried to find ways to, you know, to sort of, and part of me is like, you know, my daughter is six right now, and she totally needs me and wants me and loves me. In a couple of years, she won't, she'll be like hanging out with her friends all the time. And then I can go back to my process. So I'm trying to sit with that and tell myself that's going to change. And so I should, I should kind of, but it's hard. It's, it's, it's a constant struggle inside. I think I feel free perhaps to ask you that too, because at least in your book so far, Mm -hmm. you have concentrated on women's lives, Mm -hmm. on considering women's lives. Mm -hmm. And I wonder if you think it is more challenging for women to commit time to themselves in this way. Totally. In fact, it's really funny. I was at a restaurant a couple of years ago my book had just come out and two men um two men who were high up in the world of of publishing and and magazines and in their own respective rights saw me at the restaurant and they were both like you had a I can't believe you had a kid like why would you have a kid you're supposed to be a writer in a sense, I almost felt like it was a compliment. Like, you know, that was the first feeling I had was like, oh, these men are telling me that I'm one of the women that doesn't merely need to be a child bearer. I was built for more than that. And then I immediately wanted to, you know, <laughs> just strike that feeling from my brain. And then I got angry, you know, because they all they had like six kids between the two of them. And it's just that kind of, even when a man or someone thinks they're paying you a compliment in that right, it's like, wait, what? You know, why'd you have a kid? They don't hear themselves. They don't. They really don't. And and that was a real shock. Um, I remember being shocked. (laughs) 
How would you describe this extraordinary book? It's so striking. It's so powerful. And I wonder how you would attempt to encapsulate it. I, I know that's not really possible. No, no. And thank you so much for those words, Erica. Um, I, I think it's easy to say that Animal is a book about female rage. There's certainly a ton of that in there, a sort of um, a reckoning with a male-dominated society and all that. But for me, a lot of where Animal came from um, was my own grief. And so for me, it's it's more a book about grief and about loss. And it's funny because one of my um, high school friends who I have not had not really spoken to for a long time and who has kind of followed my career in books, but not really. So when she read Animal, she was like, um, you know, it's so funny. I read some of the reviewers saying, female rage, it's such an angry book. And she's like, all I saw was like you as this like little girl who missed her parents. And that is really what it is about. (laughs) That's a great, that's a great answer. Because... In reading about Joan, Mm -hmm. Joan is 36, Mm -hmm. and she's a woman who has affairs with different men. Mm -hmm. I don't want to give anything away. One of them ends in violence, Mm -hmm. and then her life takes a turn Mm -hmm. from there. I'm going to go out on a limb and Mm -hmm. say that by the standards that are often applied to female characters in fiction. Joan is not a likable Mm -hmm. character. Mm -hmm. My students, when I was teaching writing, would worry about this, whether Mm -hmm. their characters are likable. Mm -hmm. It's not a term I like. (laughs) What can you say about that? Oh, gosh. Well, you know, I mean, beyond the gendered... Yes. Aspect of that, which is that, you know, if a man, an unlikable male character is likable, he is depending on what, you know, I mean, as long as it's not Humbert Humbert, you can be almost anything in the male, in the the canon of, of books about men. When a man is litigious or angry or enraged, he is powerful and ambitious. And when a woman is anything, like that. She is, you know, a shrew, strident. Um, we just have such different, different, um, we do not want, we want our women to be very, we want plucky heroines who will tell you that they are not good at this or that, but then they're like, you know, they see, it's like, there's all the, there's a rubric for how to write a likable female character. And I, it is not a female character that I want to be friends with or read about. So I'm I'm interested in the real. I like when people get real. You know, it's why I have trouble sometimes in, like, you know, mom friend circles when there's a lot of, you know, there's just a lot of, um, I've, I've had, I've found friends now who are also artists. And so, like, it feels great. But there was a time, you know, when we were living in Boston and some conservative sort of communities when I would feel very sort of, I I would feel like I was just like an alien sitting there and like being all Stepford about, you know, knowing the right things to say. And I've done that enough in my life. I refuse to do it in my work. And Joan, who tells her story in the first person, Mm -hmm. uses this fantastic word about herself, which is depraved. Mm -hmm. How did you land on that? 
word. What I like about the word depraved is that it's not, it doesn't, I mean, it, I, you, this could be very easily challenged, but I don't think that has an exactly negative or positive connotation. It kind of exists by itself in the ether in a way. It exists as like almost like this is something, this person is this thing, and it that's just the way they are. We can't, we're not going to like say anything bad or good about them. They're just depraved. Just understand that there's almost a, there's a confidence to the word, which is why I, I gave it to Joan, because I do what she's doing and what I think, what I think I've done a lot too. And what I know a lot of other women have done too, is that if you sort of, if you own the criticism that someone else is going to say about you before they do, you are in control of yourself in a new way. And I think that's something, you know, comedians have done for ages and, and and it's a defense mechanism, but it's also, you know, it's not just a defense mechanism. It's also a, it's a tool that you kind of need if you want to be who you are, you know, and like that, that old adage of like, find out who you are and, and do it on purpose. You know, that's something I really, it, it's such a truism. It's such something that we really, the most successful people in the world are people who have found out who they are and done it on purpose. But whenever we try to do that ourselves, you know, anyone, like, I'll never forget, um, I think I was, this was around the time when I was interviewing Jay-Z um, for Esquire. Someone asked him, well, is, is Sinatra like your biggest idol? And he was like, no, I'm, I'm my idol. Like, wh why do I have to talk about Sinatra is basically what he was saying. Like, why is it necessary for everyone else to put me in this? Like, this is, you know, and, and I, I thought that was so um, powerful. And I, it always stuck with me. And I, I think that initially when people like that say that kind of a thing, there's always a collective groan of like, all right, all right. But if you're not going to say it for yourself, you know, other people are just going to keep putting you down. You can't really wait around for it. Um, so that's something I feel really strongly about. And Joan is a character who does what she needs to do. Mm -hmm. To me, that's the propulsive force of the book. There is, as you described, this lost child. But in the course of the novel, she is taking action mm -hmm. based on her needs, yeah. which is one of the things that's so powerful about it. I wonder... You write a book, it goes out in the world, then it belongs to other people. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. What kind of responses did you get, both from critics, mm -hmm. but also from readers and audiences? It's really run the gamut in such an interesting way. Um, that I do think that I think a lot of my writing, and I, I don't, I mean, I, I can kind of divine why sometimes, but I don't try to be divisive or extreme. But I do feel like people either like really love it or hate it. And that was very true with Animal. In fact, someone sent me, you asked me about a response, someone sent me a message on Instagram, this mom who wrote, you know, I'm the only mom on the playground who's holding your books and everyone gives me side eye and I love it. And I was like, oh, I didn't realize <laughs> I was the bearer of side eye. Um, but, you know, it's there's like some people who think it's, you know, like way too much, too angry, too subversive, too sad, too, too this, too that, too intense. There's always these things. And for me, the idea of someone thinking something is too something. Like I remember when A Little Life came out, uh, Hanya Yanagihara, 
people saying that what happened to, I think Jude was the name of the character, that, that he had suffered too much, too many terrible things that happened to him. And I had similar things said about Joan. And one thing is, I, you know, after spending a decade talking to women about their desire and their traumas often came up right alongside their desire because they were very linked for so many of us. And people saying like, oh, that's too much. And it's like, what there's people, including me, who have experienced, quote unquote, too much. So the notion that that there is a calibration you must do of how much of a person you can be in the world and how much air you can take up and to what extent you can be sad or angry or happy, I think is total bullshit. And I'm <laughs> guessing, like that side-eye woman, that you must have heard from, or I hope you heard, I suppose, from women who felt freed mm -hmm. to see this. It makes me feel like, oh, this is one of the reasons I do this. Whenever someone says, thank you, this has made me feel unalone. It's what I live for because I, I have had a lot of trauma in my life. And, and knowing that to be able to see or hear that someone has been through something similar and has come out the other side is so vital, was so vital to me that it's something I hope to do for other people. And with Joan, you know, here's this woman who has had a lot of dark, terrible things happen to her. And now she is kind of exploding out across the world with her pain and, and rage. And I think it's cathartic. Um, I mean, I know, you know, from what people have told me, it, it is endlessly great to hear that stuff. Is it tough to hear the difficult stuff? What relationship do you have to, to criticism? Because again, I think writers, when they, younger writers, writers at the beginning of their careers, that can be a scary thought. Yeah, I've always been pretty thick-skinned, but um, I will say that for me, you know, someone asked me, a major news outlet asked me to write a review of a writer who I admire very much. Um, and I agreed, and I read the book, and I did not love the new book. And I said I did not want to write the review. For me, the intentions behind criticism are so interesting, so that's why I like to see them and look at them. It's very rare to read a criticism of your work where you don't see a personal agenda inside, where the person who is writing the review is trying to do their own like wordplay within each paragraph, and they're using your work to to try to rise their star in, in whatever way. So for me, there's an inherently dishonest quality to that. I've read maybe 20 reviews in my life that I feel, like 20 negative reviews, because I think positive reviews often don't, like they have similar things, but I've read about 20 negative reviews that I'm like, wow, that is a solidly written negative review that has no baggage on it. But that's rare, and it, I think it's a rare person who can do that, and it's a real reviewer. Um, but I can sniff out that emotional baggage, and it makes me not really care what the rest of it says. So for me, I have a kind of like, well, see where that's coming from, so now what you're saying means nothing. I think we would like to think, and I speak as a book reviewer myself, obviously, that criticism comes from someplace on high, mm -hmm. <laughs> but much in the same way in life. When people yeah. criticize us, 
they're often talking about themselves. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. You know, if we stop and take a breath, yeah. we can think, oh, that comes from somewhere yeah. within them. So I do think you're right that that's something to to bear in mind. But I think that's part of the the interest of it for me is that aspect of it. It's it's I am curious. So that is something that I like I find there's so much to be done with that and there's just so much honesty to excavate in that sort of genre and I I just I find it interesting. So I guess for me I come at criticism whether it's from someone on Instagram sending me a note that I happen to see or a, a reviewer in a major paper or something saying something, I look at both in the same, through the same lens of um, curiosity. And what relationship do you have to Animal, perhaps to Joan, now? We spend so much time creating these things, then we leave them behind, <laughs> move on. Does she continue to resonate with you? Yeah, definitely. I mean, I think that... Um, it's a character that, you know, because I, I think it, she wasn't the character in, in Bitch, that, that first Gone novel. But, you know, it's a similar, there's a similar spirit there. There's a similar person who has, the person who created her, these characters is me, you know. And, and so Joan is very much, sometimes I look to Joan to like, oh, Joan would just do this, right? And and I do like that, and I feel like that's um that's exciting for me. And jo- we're um I'm adapting this into a film with um MGM and and Plan B, which I'm really excited about. So I'm gonna I've been thinking about how it, Joan's going to sort of look like on a screen, hopefully. So she's definitely very much front of mind. I'm gonna end our conversation with a series of questions that we're asking all of our writers. First question, what is the most surprising thing you've learned from being a writer? Um, the most surprising thing is, it, from being a professional writer, is how much work is involved that has nothing to do with writing. <laughs> all the administration. Yes. All those this, emails. Which is why, like, I, you know, sometimes I'm like, oh, my God, how did so-and-so, you know, some... Like, you know, how did Plato, how did who, how did they write? And I'm like, oh, because they didn't have to answer emails. <laughs> so that always makes me feel better about about being prolific. And then I think about Stephen King and I'm like, oh, forget it. Never mind. Um, but yes, the the amount of time that is spent not writing is always has been a real shock to the system. Second question. What would people be surprised to learn about you? Well, I, I think, you know, I, I've talked whenever I, I meet someone or someone is interviewing me specifically from another country after they've read Animal or other things that I've written, they'll kind of like brace themselves like they're about to like meet someone like really like scary. And actually the the Dutch publisher of um of my books, the first time she met me, she was like, I'm sorry, but you're so nice. So like friendly. It's like I, I was really prepared for it. and I was like, can you please just do me a favor and not go and tell the people in the Netherlands that at the very least. I, I want to be this scary presence to someone. My child's not, nobody's afraid of me. Um, so I think that the amount of, I mean, I have a lot of obviously vituperative, <laughs> rageful energy in me, but I'm for the most part, you know, very, very kind and mild. <laughs> well, the cat is definitely out of the bag now. <laughs> Don't 
on telling <laughs> Third question. What is your idea of perfect happiness? <laughs> um, not having anxiety for a day. <laughs> Fourth question. What advice would you give to anyone who wants to express their creativity? Do not be afraid about of what anyone is going to say about it. It does not matter at all. Fifth question. In one word, one word, mm-hmm. how would you like to be remembered as a writer? Rageful. No, I'm just kidding. Um, uh, gosh, that's really hard. Um, I guess, I don't know. Um, self-assured? I say it very non-self-assuredly. I'm like, self-assured. I think it's interesting. You just went for rageful and then pulled back. Our first instincts are sometimes. I think that there is a um, sort of subconscious desire to want to be feared as a woman because there is so much maltreatment. So if you sort of like puff up your chest and beat your chest in a sense, like you're you're not, that's not going to happen. So I think that is something that I, I find that when, you know, even in re- my regular job, when I'm like really nice to people, you get taken advantage of, um, not by good people, but by people who are, you know, sort of have their own agendas. And, and if you sort of act a little bit more aggressively, you don't. And I learned that from my dad, you know, I remember growing up, my dad would always be like, on the phone, um, whenever somebody wasn't doing something he wanted, he would raise his voice like this and start, like, just, like, repeat himself. And I do that. So when I'm, like, in a store and if someone, like, is not being nice to, you know, me or doing something, I'm very, like, I get aggressive and raise my voice. And so, uh, you know, I've learned that that works. I don't like using that. I always start from, you know, so I guess, all right, let's call it rageful. Why not? (laughs) We'll go for rageful. And then a final question, which is a complex question, but I want to invite you to look forward. What would you like your second novel to look like? Well, that is a very interesting question. You know, Animal, I wanted to be insular in a sense. I wanted it to be about a small life in a sense, Um, one little life. I think my next one, I would like it to be more expansive. I like that. Well, I will very much look forward to reading that second novel. And I would like to thank you, Lisa Tadeo, for taking part in our Chanel Rendezvous Literaire podcast. It was wonderful to talk to you. Gosh, Erica, this was an absolute pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Rendezvous Littéraire Rue Cambon podcast. To discover more about it, you will find images, links, and references on the Chanel website. À bientôt!